Welcome to the John E. Martin Mental Health Care Podcast, created in partnership with Google and UC Berkeley Haas School of Business. I'm Britt Jensen. And I'm Michael Martin. And we are your hosts for today. I'm thrilled today to welcome Brandon Johnson to the podcast. Brandon is an extremely dedicated mental health and suicide prevention advocate in all parts of his life. He is a public health advisor at the Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Administration, SAMHSA, in the Suicide Prevention Branch of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, where he oversees a number of suicide prevention grant programs. Outside of his work at SAMHSA, Brandon is the creator of the Black Mental Wellness Lounge, a YouTube channel dedicated to discussing Black mental health and healing. Before we really get into the conversation, I just wanted to clarify that Brandon is speaking to us outside of his role representing SAMHSA, so everything that he shares with us are his opinions, not those of the agency he works for. Brandon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and share with you all today. This is this is exciting. Brandon, we are so excited to learn from you. Before we jump into our many questions, I was wondering if you could share something you're grateful for today. Maybe something that helped provide you some grounding, some perspective, or put a simple smile on your face. I'm really grateful just to be back home. I just spent some time in, in Las Vegas at a conference really talking about health equity issues when it pertains to mental health. And so I had a really, really great time. And it was my first time traveling since the pandemic started. So it was a bit anxiety producing at first, but everything went well. And I feel really good about how everything went. And so I'm just excited to be back home and be back with the family. That's wonderful. And it's, it's wonderful to go and establish or reestablish those in-person connections. Brandon, outside of your day job, you also run, as reference, the Black Youth Mental Wellness Lounge, a YouTube channel dedicated to discussing mental health with the Black community, and specifically you. What inspired you to start this? The Black Mental Wellness Lounge was, is really what I call my pandemic baby. So there was, as you can remember, a lot of things happening in 2020. 2020 started off really normal, like things were okay. And then, you know, with the pandemic happening, it shifted all of our ways of life, the things that we could do, where we could go, how we felt about our own safety, how we felt about our own health, the health of people that we cared about. And at the same time that the pandemic was happening, there was really a couple of really traumatizing incidences in the Black community. So we had the death of George Floyd, we had Breonna Taylor's death. We had Ahmaud Arbery's death. And this is all during the pandemic, right? And so the things that we know now about the pandemic, we were just finding out then. So disproportionately, African-Americans were impacted, particularly at the beginning of the, the pandemic. Disproportionately, Black businesses closed during the early days of the pandemic. They couldn't quite manage the break-in being able to deliver services or provide goods and do business as, as normal. And so on top of that, you layer in those instances that I shared and you're talking about a very traumatic, stressful time within the Black community. And so I have worked in public health, mental health, suicide prevention for a while. I wanted to find a way to get to community, right? I saw so many people struggling online, so many of my friends and, and family members trying to like process everything at once. And I was just thinking like, what can I do from this position? Because when you're with the feds, that's the 30,000 foot view. That's the furthest away from community that you are. 
And so I was like, what can I do? And so I thought about, let me just, you know, take some of the things that I know and record a video and talking about how to process the trauma, how to deal with it, how to find ways to cope. And so I, I did one video. It went pretty well. It got a couple thousand views on, on Facebook. And so as I did it, there were a lot of people that reached out to me saying, like, this was helpful. Thanks for putting this up, blah, blah, blah. And so at that point, I was like, maybe this is a way to continue to engage people. Maybe this is a way to connect. And so from there, the Black Mental Wellness Lounge was born and definitely something that I, I hope to continue. It's a it's a labor of love for sure. It's a lot of work that goes into it. But that's really kind of where I I moved into that space of creating it. That is fantastic to go and understand and learn about how you rose to the moment, so to speak, and really were thinking beyond yourself and going and doing something that was so very needed at that time for the community. Now, a few weeks ago, it was Black Youth Suicide Prevention Week. And we know that at present, we're seeing historical rates and incidents of mental health-related problems amongst our youth. You spoke about this Black Youth Suicide Prevention Week on your YouTube channel, which of course was bustling with activity. Can you share some of your takeaways from that week and the conversations you had regarding this very, very serious and important issue? Yeah. So this was this was the the second Black Youth Suicide Prevention Week and Last year was really just wanted to create awareness for this issue. It's not one that I think a lot of people are aware of and know about, but we've seen consistent increases in the suicide rate among Black youth, particularly between the ages of 5 and 12. We've seen significant increases in the last 10 years, 10 to 12 years at this point, of suicide attempts among Black adolescents between the ages of 13 and 17. And so seeing these rates, it was something that I wanted to really get to our community, other communities, and I wanted to create an awareness campaign about this issue. And so during that week, I had five guests come on. We released a video every day. So was truly, truly happy to see it grow in that way and to get this information out. I also wanted to ask you, so how do you think about improving mental health resources for vulnerable communities over different time frames? So, for example, one thing that I think comes up frequently on your channel and in all of these conversations is that there aren't enough mental health providers that look like the communities they serve. And so we can't grow that pool of providers instantaneously. How do we both create stopgap solutions? I guess you were just talking about some of those with slowing down a little bit and getting trained. How do we create those stopgap solutions and also invest in the pipeline for the future? I think this is a really good question. What I would say is that in terms of the right now, you're right. We're not going to have enough providers of color to engage the young people that that need care. That's something that is not possible, unfortunately, for, for where we are in, in the system. And so obviously we know that individuals of all racial ethnic backgrounds, if you go to a counselor or mental health professional that shares a lot of your identities, that there are better outcomes. We do know that from the, the literature and things. However, what we also know is that other clinicians who are not of the same racial ethnic background, do not share those identities, can be 
just as impactful if they engage in a way that meets the client's needs. And so one of the things that I I always talk about and preach about is cultural humility, right? Like kind of taking that step further from cultural competence, which says, you know, I am proficient enough and know enough about your culture to be able to service you, right? Cultural humility says that I will never know everything about your culture. That is not a realistic thing that I, I can do. However, what I want to know is how your culture impacts you. What does it mean for you? How can your culture be embedded into this process of healing where it can be impactful for you and be an asset for you during this time? And so if we have more clinicians able to do that, regardless of who they're serving, to go in with that mindset of wanting to learn and knowing that I may make a mistake in this therapeutic process and I'm able to hold myself accountable apologizing and try to move forward, I think that we can help to bridge those gaps. And also looking at our community-based organizations, our faith-based organizations, those places within community that have buy-in, that usually try to meet the needs of the individuals that they're connected to. I mean, one of the biggest things about suicide prevention that I preach constantly is like the social determinants of health, right? We have these individual factors that impact us, but our relationships impact our health. Our communities impact our health. Society impacts our health. It's hard to do well in the therapeutic process if you don't have affordable housing. You're working multiple jobs to sustain yourself, and it's hard for you to keep food on the table because of that. You know, faith-based organizations are great at meeting those needs, right? So connecting with them, community-based organizations that will find ways to create healing practices within a community, like collaborating with them is a really good way to kind of bridge those things together to help meet those needs. As far as the the pipeline, I think it's important for us to encourage young people to take a look at fields such as mental health, suicide prevention, social work, public health, to really in, engage them in that process. I think many young people in high school and college don't even know that this is a field. I can tell you very personally I had no idea about the suicide prevention field when, even when I was an undergrad, I was a psychology major. It wasn't in that sphere. I didn't even know about public health. There was, I presented at a conference at school at my alma mater, Morgan State University. And there was a professor there that said, you know, they looked at what in my research and what I was doing, which was around community violence and mental health. And they said, have you ever thought about public health? And I was like, I've heard of it, but I don't, I don't know anything about the field. And then I ended up going to a public health school and getting a public health master's degree. So exposing our young people to those and having them understand where their race and things are. And sometimes that that is enough to get young people activated to want to, to help to get engaged. And it's also quick plug why I have a future Black Voices series on the Black Mental Wellness Lounge, where I bring in professionals of color in uh, mental health social work and public health to give advice, like just free advice about finding a mentor, how to choose a major, how to deal with challenges on the job. I mean, like just things that I wish I knew when I was trying to go into the workforce and things like that. So I think it's important for us to help kind of drive young people to those spaces. That's fantastic to hear. And I could tell with the way that you speak about this, that passion is clearly present 
and you having had these experiences at the local, state, and federal level, I'm wondering if you could go and share with us briefly, what are the roles of each of those levels of government as it relates to going and dealing with these mental health care related issues? Yeah, I think that we're the organizers. We are the infrastructure, right? Like we are the place where plans can happen. We're the conveners, right? We can bring people together to work on topics and issues. And I think at the local level, very much coordinating with the state to understand where their priorities are and how to feed information about what's happening at the local level to the state, right? It's understanding and being able to collaborate and connect within community to say, hey, not sure if you know, but our veterans in this community are struggling. Like, hey, we have a large immigrant population in this county and they're struggling right now. Like whether it be things that are happening on the news, it could be a policy issue that's impacted them, but we're seeing increases in mental health utilization down here. We're going to need resources, right? So like the local level, you're in the community. You are the community. Like you're a part of the community. With every level of government that you go up, you're further away from it. So the local piece has to be within community, right? To know community, get outside of the walls of the local health department, talk to people, get engaged within that local community that I was in. Like I met with churches. I met with community. Like I stayed out in community and you get to learn and grow and have them be a part of things. And I think at the state, it's more so that's where there are more resources. And so like they can delegate resources and get things to high priority need. So in my role at the state, I was in community. I talked to local governments. Like I said, I was out in the community a lot, getting information and data. But it was also my job to know what was happening above me at the federal level, to know what their priorities were, where funding was coming in at, where their resources are. Because at the federal level, we produce resources a lot. There's a lot that comes out of the federal government and the things that come out of the feds are free. Right. So obviously we do funding, but like the resources themselves, like webinars, toolkits, frameworks, communities of practice, like all those kinds of things are free. So being engaged with that. So the state is kind of in the middle, setting those priorities and understanding from the feds and then articulating them to a number of different sectors. I think of the state, I engaged with the child welfare system, juvenile justice, schools, and then at the feds, it's our job to set the stage. It's our job to say, like, we have, here's the data, here's what's happening. And it's our job also to listen to the states. At SPRC, we do a lot of interfacing with state suicide prevention coordinators. SPRC does a drop-in session every quarter. All the state suicide prevention coordinators and their staffs are able to come, tell us what's happening, tell us what's going on, how can we help, where do you need resources? So those type of things, and also talking to one another in our agency. So you know, SAMHSA talking to CDC, talking to HRSA, talking to Administration of Children and Family, talking to VA, making sure that we're all communicating and we do that there as well, with the caveat that I'm not representing the federal government on this <laughs> on this podcast. But those are the type of things that that happen. So I think that those are the type of conversations across those levels that we can do to kind of impact this. Brandon, from a research perspective, concerning Black mental health and Black youth mental health more specifically, what gaps do you think exist at present? This could be a whole separate podcast. I'll keep it quick. <laughs> <laughs> One 
and again, not representing any federal space in this, just making sure I cover that a lot. So from my view, very much Brandon Johnson's point of view, funding is one piece. There is a huge discrepancy on who gets funded for research and what topics get funded. There is a huge disparity among funding for white clinicians and researchers versus researchers of color. There's a huge disparity there. Understanding what works in our community, we need funding behind that to do the research, to know how to help. There aren't many at all, you know, interventions and things that are what the field considers evidence-based. Evidence-based means you have gotten funding to do a trial, usually randomized control trials, the best one, that's the gold standard. You've published it in a reputable journal, boom, like that's evidence-based, right? But if our researchers aren't getting the funding to study what they believe works and what's happening at the local levels within these communities, then it's hard for us to, to drive a list of evidence-based practices, right? And so, which is why a lot of our spaces, we do and engage with promising practices. So we have data on them. They're doing well. They're just not published. And also practice-based evidence. Like we know things that have worked and we've built an evidence base based on what we've seen work with that. And so like those are particular challenges. If we don't solve the, the funding issue, if we don't get our researchers and things connected to that work and build out and understand where we can be impactful, be more impactful, and then bring things to scale and disseminate it, right? So without that piece, it's hard for us and without that funding to build up things that we know that works and then get them in other places, right? Like we have examples like this place in Detroit is doing this thing. This place in Baltimore is doing this thing. This place in Houston is doing this thing. Like that's great. How do we amplify that and get what they're doing to other places so we can be impactful? And because of those research disparities, it's been really hard. Absolutely. This year's Johnny Martin Mental Health Care Challenge was focused on mental health care for vulnerable adolescents in both urban and rural areas. So we'd love to go and hear more about how you think about how access to mental health care for youth differs depending upon geography. Oh, yeah, it absolutely does. One, I want to shout out before I even start this, HRSA, the Health Resources Services Administration, or as a part of U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, has an Office of Rural Health Policy. They do amazing work in rural health across the country. I would definitely encourage anyone who is interested in this to definitely reach out to them. At their website is hrsa.gov. And from there, you can navigate and find the Office of Rural Health Policy, but definitely would, would check in with them. But yeah, you know, we talk about equity. Access to services is a big one. In, in rural communities, you have some people where, especially working, you know, you're talking about adolescent health, for a parent to find a child therapist or psychologist, maybe driving two, three hours to get to a mental health professional. It's difficult to get there. They're also, the clinicians in those spaces are booked more, right? They may be fully booked. And so you're waiting out months because they're the only provider in a huge mile radius you know, to be able to provide services. There are also additional challenges with our young people in rural communities with isolation, right? They're, you know, more isolated. There's less connection. And what we know around suicide on the individual level, that loneliness and isolation can be a challenging thing, especially for young people to manage. That's a time where a lot of what you get is built off of connection with other people, right? 
And so, whereas in an urban environment, you may say, you know, if a young person is like, yeah, school really is, and I don't have a lot of friends at school and things like that, but I may have a bunch of friends in the neighborhood, it is certainly a challenge. I, I would say one thing, if you can find a positive silver lining around the pandemic, it was the creation of more telehealth services and telebehavioral health services. We we saw the need of how do we deliver care if we can't physically get to people, if we can't have that connection. And so I definitely always encourage people in rural communities to see, you know, find places that offer telehealth. I know Psychology Today has a pretty big resource list and a lot of the people there have indicated whether or not they do virtual services as well. One of the things that I've seen of late is that athletes and artists are diving headfirst into mental health under the guise of performance improvement. How important is the lens, in this case, performance improvement, when it comes to Black youth seeking out mental health resources? It's definitely important. And, I, and I, I'm a big sports person, and it's, it's so awesome to see so many people being open and honest in this space of, you know, we got Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, DeMar DeRozan, Kevin Love, Michael Phelps, and a native Baltimorean there. But there are so many people talking about this and, and this side of it, which I think is really important. And so in terms of performance and improvement, you know, I definitely think in terms of seeking out you know, resources for Black youth suicide. I think, you know, engaging with our young people, it's still a very stigmatized issue. It's still one that they, you know, have concerns talking about. And sometimes they feel tough about being vulnerable with it. And one of the things that I try to give young people that I work with through my church and other places that I give back is really, we want you to be your best self, right? Like we want you to be able to reach your maximum potential. Like there's so much that you can offer. And I think in terms of performance, it's all depending on what lens you, you know, you want to use with that. So even like I tell young people, like this is beyond just, you know, like what you can do at school, right? Like whether or not you can, you know, get good grades or excel if you're playing a sport, because those things from young people, what I've heard, like that's where some of the pressure comes in at. It's like feeling like I can't mess up. I can't, you know, get a B here. Everyone's talking about how pristine my my transcript has to look if I want to get into college. If I want to play D1, I have to have these performances in, in these games. And they talk about the pressure, whether it's internal or external. I talk a lot with them about that. These pressures that I have, it's even just, you know, there are other markers outside of that. Were you happy this week? Did you do something that made you happy this week? Did you feel like your best self? Like when something happened that was funny, did you feel like you could laugh? Did you feel that you had people to support you when you didn't feel good? Did you have places and things in place that you could do those things? So like whatever your best self looks like on that day, are you able to meet it? Because if we're very honest, even just as adults, our capacity on a day-to-day basis, our performance on a day-to-day basis it wanes. Some days I can give you 120%. I can give you 150% today. Tomorrow I can give you 30 because my day didn't go well. I have other things on, on my mind. I got some bad news. This thing happened, like car breaks down here, like something happens here. So my performance is going to 
between depending on that. Like, I just didn't have a good week. I don't have it. Or sometimes I don't even know. Sometimes I just didn't wake up. I didn't feel great. Right. But like I have resources to be able to maintain and go throughout the day and, and just say like, yeah, tomorrow will be better. Tomorrow will be a better one. We'll go forward from there. So I think with our young people, just encouraging them to be the, their best selves. And I think for us around young people is is also to give grace in their performance as well. We can't expect ourselves to be perfect and exemplary every day. So we can't expect our kids to be also. And that's something even as a parent, you know, with my 11-year-old, 8-year-old that I'm trying and learning myself in my parenting journey to do that also. So I think when it comes to that performance improvement, performance, it depends on how you look at it. And I think a more holistic view of how we view performance is definitely something that we can use to encourage our young people. Yeah. Brandon, thank you so much for joining us today. This has just been such an incredible conversation. I th- and I think the number of times where we you've paused and said, oh, we could have a whole episode or a whole series on this, this this just makes me so grateful that you actually have that. So we're going to direct everyone to your Black Mental Wellness Lounge for all those moments when Brandon said we could talk much deeper about this. Hopefully he has or will on that channel. So really appreciate all the the insights you've shared with us today. You've, you've shared so much about your professional journey, your, your thoughts on the field, as well as your personal journey, the, the role models that you've looked up to. And it's just been a really wonderful conversation. And I was going to end with, you know, any sort of Words of advice for listeners looking to be supportive friends and family, as well as advocates for mental health and wellness in their communities. I think we've already covered a lot of that, but do you have any closing thoughts or any questions that we hadn't yet asked you that you were really hoping that you'd get a chance to talk about today? No, I think we've covered all the questions. And again, thank you for having me on for this. I I think for one thing I didn't do was shout out my own parents in this. So shout out to my mom and their support of me also in being the best role models I could have asked for. But also for anybody like just listening to this that wants to be better in this space, I would tell them it's a process. And one thing I'm big on is just the things that we want to do to show up for other people are things that we we should be doing for ourselves and to how to show up for our, our best selves. And so I tell people a good place, all the things you want to practice Um, That you tell people to practice like forgiveness and self-care and supports and things like that and giving people grace, like practice with yourself first. Give yourself grace, give yourself forgiveness if it's, you know, something that you're struggling with that you didn't quite get quite right. Give yourself time to recover. Give yourself that self-care, something that I admittedly am not the best with. My wife, if she was here, could tell you that that's not something I'm great at but something that I'm working to approve. So give yourself those opportunities to recover. And, you know, for those in the space, give yourself an opportunity to get away from the work for a bit. Passion projects, you know, we don't have to burn ourselves out doing passion projects, right? Give yourself that grace, but just, you know, show up for people and be a safe place to land for people, for young people. Like listen without judgment, give them an opportunity to talk. They really want to be heard. If that's the one consistent thing that they talk about, is that they feel like their experience are minimized and things like that. I always give the example of young people saying like, you know, like they have a trouble in their relationship. Like if they're, you know, in high school and things like that, an adult going, you know, you're not going to remember that person. Like that's just puppy lover, things like that. And I think we all, if we can transport ourselves back there, had experienced some times where it, it was the world to us. Right. And so giving them that, that space to do that, but just everyone taking care of themselves and, once we're able to do that, we can show up better for other people. 
Yeah. Well, I thought you were out of advice, but there, there you go with one more, one more <laughs> really, really solid piece of advice and, and enjoy the, the shout out to your parents too. It's important to remember where we came from and to express that gratitude. Thank you so much for joining us today as we learned about how to improve the access to and quality of mental health care. We would like to send a special thanks to our partners, Google and the UC Berkeley Hoff School of Business. And we would of course like to thank Ventures FM for making this podcast come to life. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.